Good morning, Redeemer. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Psalm chapter 2. And just FYI, we're going to be spending the next uh, 10 weeks in the book of Psalms. And the goal is over the next several summers to uh, turn our hearts to the Psalms and make our way through uh, one of the songbooks in the Bible. Uh, in a few weeks, when we go on vacation, Brian Galt will be bringing God's word and he's going to tackle two Psalms. We're not going to go in order. So uh, bear with us. We're going to try to make our way through them over the next several years. Uh, I'm going to read the word of God and pray, and then we'll jump in. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, your word is living and it is active. It is profitable for our souls. That it shall not return to you void. That it can lift up the downtrodden. It can humble the prideful. It can convict those of us who live in sin. It can encourage those of us who are discouraged. Father, my prayer, our longing is that you would do a mighty work through your word that where conviction is needed, you would bring it. Where encouragement is needed, you would bring it. Only you can apply your word to your people in ways that you see fit. And so would you do it through your servant, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And so uh, if you're a journalist or a reporter or a news anchor, then you know that the key to every story is informing your audience on the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, and the how. That it's not a real story until you can convey all of that. And by, by answering all of those questions, you give those who watch or listen or read an ability to respond appropriately. The who, the what, the when, the where, the why, the how, it's important in journalism. And I would say it's also important for understanding the Psalms. Here's an example. Suppose I were to tell you that, that a man shot and killed a Labrador retriever. And I, and I left it right there. That if you're an animal rights activist, you, you might, it might cause some, some anger, some frustration. But what if I told you that, that the man shot his own dog, right? And suppose I told you where this happened. It happened in the state of Pennsylvania. And according to statute 459-501 of Pennsylvania, you, the owner, you have the right to take the life of your dog, right? 
you would at least have to step back and say, okay, well, it's not illegal. But what if I told you why? I've given you the who, the what, the when, the where. But what if I told you why that this man's dog was mauling his own three-year-old daughter? Right? And she has bite marks on her body to prove it. That's different. That's a different, that evoke, that should evoke a different response than me just giving you partial information. That the rest of that information, it's the difference between calling the authorities on the man and then walking next door to give him a hug because you're his next door neighbor and your three-year-old daughter plays with his three-year-old daughter. Information, it's a difference. It changes how we respond. The Psalms work the same way. That if you only look at the what is written and you don't know the who, the what, the when, the where, the why, the how, then we're prone to not understanding and therefore not having the proper response to the Psalms. And so I want to answer some of that for you. What, what, what is it that we know of the Psalms? It's, it's 150 different chapters. Who? Who wrote the Psalms? The book of Psalms were written by several authors, right? Numerous authors, David, uh, Moses. Some of them are, are not even, we don't, we don't know who wrote them, right? And so when you approach the Psalms, there are several different writers who are contributing. Well, when were the Psalms written? Over a thousand year period of time. One of the earliest Psalms is Psalm 90, which was written by Moses. Moses. One of the, the, the latter Psalms was Psalm 137, because in Psalm 137, there's an allusion to Babylon, the Babylonian captivity. And, and scholars like Mark Furtado, and I would commend to you a book by Miles Van Pelt. It, it's, it's sort of a biblical theological approach to the Old Testament. But they even say that that song was 400 B.C. So you're going from the time of Moses to the time of Psalm 90. That's a thousand years. So let me get this right. The Psalms were written over a span of a thousand years on, in, in numerous different places by numerous different people that helps fill it out. Well, how did we get this final collection? Someone called a redactor, which is a fancy word for an editor, took all of these Psalms written by all of these different people and put them in the form that we have right now. And what we believe is Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 could have been one psalm. Some of the earlier manuscripts, you kind of see some evidence that this was true. But if you notice, look at Psalm 1 and look at Psalm 2 in your Bibles. There is no heading above it, right? You see the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. That is not in the Hebrew you also see chapter 2, the reign of the Lord's anointed. That's not in the Hebrew. But when you turn over to Psalm 3, you see that next phrase? A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Look at the heading on Psalm 4. To the choir master with string instruments, a psalm of David. Look at Psalm 5. To the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Here's what you notice is missing from Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. There is no heading. Now, why is there not a heading? Because scholars think that the redactor or the editor wrote them 
and put Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 at the beginning before you get into the book that should frame how you read the book. Make sense? Now, why would the editor of the Psalms start with one and two? Why would he put two right here? We believe that the editing was, was, was latter in Israel's time and therefore the editor stood here. And what he has the privilege of is knowing Israel's history. He knew, right? He's later in history. So he knew of Moses and what Moses did. He knew of, of, of God using Moses to bring his people out of, the prom, out of the land of bondage. He knew, right, that Moses didn't make it into the promised land. He could see it. He knew that Joshua brought God's people into the promised land. He knew that Joshua conquered all of Israel's enemies. He knew that when Israel wanted a king, and so they screamed for a king. He knew that God made a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 to give them a king. He knew the covenant God made with David that your son will always be on the throne. And he also knew that David's kingdom was torn into two. And he knew that they were taken into Babylonian captivity. And he knew that they came back into the land. And he knew that there was no longer an, a Jewish king on the throne. And it would have been tempting for Israel to feel kingless and to feel like God had forgotten them and to feel like they were vulnerable and exposed as if the promises of God were not going to come true for them, that the glory days of Israel were behind them. And some say that this is probably an ancient coronation psalm and it, and it could read as that. But it looks like the, the, the editor sort of tweaked this a little to make it fit into where they were biblically and theologically, that there was not an, a Jewish king on the throne at the moment and the nations around them appeared stronger. And God is saying, do not forget my promises. Comfort does exist in the middle of chaos. Rest does exist amidst political restlessness. There can be peace in the middle of international turmoil. That by putting this psalm at the beginning, the editor of the Psalms wanted Israel to remember, you are not forgotten. You do have a king and he's on his way. I wonder if we find ourselves feeling like Israel would have felt if you don't today, trust me, you will. When you look at what's happening in national news and world news, does it cause you to worry? Does it cause you to panic? Does it cause you to despair? I get it that some of us in here might not. We might be so mature in our faith that we rest in the work of King Jesus, right? but I want you to know that you're in a congregation where we're on a spectrum where everybody isn't there yet, right? I love what John Calvin says about the Psalms. He says, the Psalms, they're an anatomy of all parts of the human soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious of that is not represented in these Psalms as a mirror. In other words, what Calvin is saying is when you read the Psalms, 
the psalmist is taking us through a journey, right? You're going to feel vulnerable in life, and therefore there are psalms to meet you in your vulnerability. You're going to feel the cloud of darkness over you, and therefore there are psalms that walk you out of darkness. You're going to feel vulnerable and unprotected, and therefore there are psalms that show you the strength and might of the Lord. You're going to feel like you want to take out your anger on your enemies, and therefore you will read psalms that, 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 that kind of dovetail with that. In other words, what Calvin is saying is, as you read the Psalms, be looking for what's going on on an emotional and spiritual level. God will minister to you and to us in these places. If Psalm 1, if the editor wants us to start with saying, above all things, cherish this word, Wherever you are and whatever you're going through, cherish this word and you will be like a tree planted by water and you will bloom. Doesn't matter what's going on around you. Right. This will anchor you. You won't be like chaff that wind drives away. You will have deep roots and all that you do, you will prosper. What a Psalm 2. What is he trying to get us to read and know? Three points. The first thing is you will encounter the pride of the collective and it will shake you. Verses one through three. There's a man by the name of Ken Isold, and here's what he writes about mob behavior. If you've ever been in a mob that was agitated about some injustice, then you know how contagious it can be. Ordinary people, normal citizens like you and me, we get swept up and do things that would be unlikely under other circumstances, shouting, shoving, throwing rocks, smashing windows, and yes, even looting. It usually takes an incident to get a riot starting, such as an accident or the police attacking or killing an innocent bystander. But once it has begun, the raging mob has a life of its own. Deep-seating resentments, repetitive frustrations, and long-standing disappointments, they galvanize people into action. And the mob provides a cover, an anonymity that makes it easier to overcome one's usual reticence or moral scruples. One is immersed, even engulfed. And it can become an exuberant experience, a joyful release for suppressed emotions. It offers a kind of intense belonging, not dissimilar to what spectators feel at a sport or a concert. This is helpful for understanding Psalm 2. You see, in Psalm 1, the focus was on blessed is the man or blessed is the woman. His delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He or she will be like a tree. In other words, the focus of Psalm 1 is on the individual, and who falls to the background is the collective. And things get switched. They get switched in Psalm 2. Who comes to the foreground in Psalm 2? It's the collective. That's why all these words are plural. You kings, plural. You rulers, plural. You, you people, peoples, plural. Plural. In other words, what Psalm 2 is getting at is this collective pride that we have in the multitudes, right? That the, the, the release of long suppressed emotions are, are sort of coming out and the trigger is not injustice. The trigger to this raging mob is Yahweh on the throne. And they don't like that. And what do they want? 
It says, let us burst their cords. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They detest not being in control. They loathe having to answer to an authority greater than them. They want to do things their way while God's people, while the blessed man or woman in Psalm 1 meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. You want to know what the kings and the rulers and the peoples of the earth, what they meditate on? It's how to break free from the Lord. It should remind us of the Tower of Babel, shouldn't it? What did God say in the beginning? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule and subdue it. It was a commandment to go from the garden and to go out and to spread the glory of the Lord across the face of the earth. And what did they do at Babel? We will not scatter. And we will not spread the glory of the Lord. We will build a city right here with our name on it. And we will build a, an edifice that storms the very gates of heaven. That is the heart of wicked and rebellious mankind. It wants to break free of the Lord's commandments. And what Psalm 2 says is the spirit of Babel is still present. It was still present. Mankind does not want to submit to the rule of God. And when we get some resources and some other people around us and some power, it's bad. If we believe the Psalms were finally arranged after the exile, then they returned to Jerusalem and didn't have a temple and they didn't have a king and they were a little nation relying on the resources from Babylon to rebuild. And they were sandwiched between larger nations stronger than them. You'd know exactly how they felt. Voiceless, abandoned, anxious. The God they want to rebel against is our God. The law they hate is our law. The authority that we submit to is the one they want to break free of. And there is no one on the throne to protect us, or so it seems. What does this mean for us? I think it means for us as believers. The pride of the collective will be obvious. As you live life on earth, laws will be passed that will fly in the face of our king. And justice happens that contradicts the truths of scripture. You'll witness with your own eyes Kings and presidents and rulers and dictators who walk around the earth, throwing their weight, flexing their muscle, making a name for themselves, stirring up trouble, turning a blind eye against the Lord and his kingdom. You'll watch dictators fly weapons in the ocean and you'll feel smaller and smaller and smaller and more vulnerable in a growing world. And the temptation will be to feel forgotten, to feel afraid, to feel powerless. And you'll feel it on a local level. You'll watch the news. And you'll see five murders in 24 hours in our own city. And you'll hear about people plotting and scheming, popping pills, snorting, loading weapons to wreak havoc on the weak and the vulnerable. And some of you will cope with this by carrying and concealing 
Some of you will choose to get in politics, to try to be a change agent. Some of you will go into to, to jobs where you can enter into poor neighborhoods. Some of you will take up degrees to get counseling. Some of you will show up at the polls faithfully. Some of you will choose a life in a safer part of town. Some of you will not drive down certain parts of the, of the city. Some of you will lock your doors as soon as you walk into your home. And what we're all doing is trying to cope and live in a world that is upside down and it is broken because there is rebellion from, from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows, lows, and that's the world and the city that we live in. And we feel vulnerable. And we feel unsafe. And we feel unkept. And it hurts. This is what the psalmist is doing. He's given us a, 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 a bird's eye view into what's happening in the hearts of the wicked. Now, he does something beautiful in the passage. He not only takes us into to, to what's happening in the hearts of the wicked, but he gives us a peek into heaven and it should be a source of comfort. That's the second point. The Psalms, they carry our gaze from what the nations and rulers and wicked and people are doing on the earth. And then he says, lift your head up and look somewhere else. Lift your head up and look someone else, somewhere else. And this is something that, that the psalmist is always doing. You know, Psalm 121, that I, I, I lift my eyes to the hills. And, and notice that we tend to approach that like the hills are helpful. But if you were making the pilgrimage through the hills to Jerusalem, the hills weren't helpful. That's where robbers hid out. And that's where it was dark. And that's where murderers could, could hide out and get you under the cover of night. And so the psalmist, as they're making their pilgrimage, they're looking to the hills and they're terrified. And you know what he says? I will look to the Lord from whence my help comes from. In other words, in Psalm 121, the Christ Christians are instructed, we're looking in two places. We see what's dangerous and we see what frightens us. But if we're going to really, really, really live faithfully in this kingdom, then we have to have another gaze. We have to see somewhere else. And that is exactly what the psalmist does here. Look at what it says. Verse four, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Think about it. He's looking at the plotting and the scheming and it should make us anxious. And then he says, let me give you a peek into what's happening in heaven. And what's happening in heaven should be comforting to you. Now, where does he take us to heaven and, and, and try to visualize the scene? I mean, try to visualize what he sees by the spirit that plotting and scheming to overthrow. And then God takes his gaze up. Is God fretting? Is God panicking? Is God worrying? No, the psalmist says he's laughing. Think about that. The stuff that makes us afraid, God laughs at. Think about that, right? That Calvin was right, right? The psalms give us an emotional sort of mirror to the human heart. But you want to know what else it shows us? It shows us the emotional heart of the Lord. What is the Lord doing right now? He's laughing at wannabe kings. He's laughing at people who want to break free from his bonds. He's laughing, beloved. And then that laughter gives way to something else. 
It starts to move. It starts to turn to speech in verse five. Then he will speak. Right. So he moves from laughing to speaking and he moves from laughing and being humored to wrath and anger. Now, why would God move from humor to anger and start speaking? Because the position for the most powerful king of all time. Guess what? It's already taken. It's how he's already given that title to another. The seat of power has already been given. The location of this king's reign has already been determined. The identity of the most powerful king in the world is already fixed. And so the Lord is, he mocks and he laughs at people who think that it will be them. He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. Therefore, God's king isn't in Babylon. God's king isn't in Persia. God's king isn't in Egypt. God's king isn't in America. God's king is on Zion, a holy hill in Jerusalem. God says, yes, this is my king. He is king of kings and lords of lords now and forevermore. What would it have been like to hear God say that? You don't think that was comforting to Israel? And then the psalmist gives them another voice. Someone else starts to speak in heaven. And this time it isn't God the Father. It's the king himself. He starts to speak. And notice what he says in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me. In other words, this is different. This is a different person speaking in heaven. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, this is the king himself speaking. He's begotten me. I'm the installed one. And he's going to give me everything, all the nations. He's going to give it to me and he's giving me the authority and the power to rule and subdue. This is the king speaking. On one level, this could be true of, 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 of the covenant that God made with David. David says, God says to me, you are a son. But I think we also know that there's a reason Jesus's genealogy is traced back to David as the ultimate fulfillment What would this have meant for those living when this was written? We do have a king and the Lord does have a son. Our Davidic king is coming and he will crush his and our enemies and he will be worshiped by all. This would have been comforting family. The heavens show them the future. God showed them what he was about to do. What about us? Amidst our anxiety and frustration and uncertainty, God says you have hope. He showed Israel what he would do in the future. For us on this side of the cross, he points us to what he has done already. The son promised in Psalm 2 is the son who comes in Matthew 2. The son begotten by the father in Psalm 2 is the same son who shows up in Matthew 3. And you want to know what's, what is said of Jesus when he is baptized in Matthew 3? This is my beloved son right here. 
him. You know what's said of Jesus in Matthew, when, uh, Matthew 17, when Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, what God the Father is doing through the ministry and life of Jesus is saying, the one that I promised you in Psalm 2, he's the king who's come in Matthew 2. And I'm going to let you hear me affirm him and coronate him at the beginning of his life and at the end of the life. Make no mistake about it. This is the king. And it's the reason in Acts chapter four, after Jesus has been crucified and raised, that the believers gathered. And you want to know what psalm they repeated? This psalm right here. And they applied it beautifully. The kings and the rulers of the earth who plotted against the son of God. It was a Roman Empire and the peoples of the earth who plotted against the son of God. It was the Jews and they tried to kill this king, but they could not keep this king in the ground. And he rose in glory and might and majesty and power. Amen. They saw it. They saw it. Psalm 2 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Everybody is applying it to Jesus. He is the king. We look back. We do have a king. We aren't kingless. He's come. And you know where else Psalm 2 is quoted over and over and over again? In the book of Revelation, 19 times, same psalm, same psalm and allusions to it. Here is just one, Revelation 19. And then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood as if he's gone to war. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. And here's, listen to what it does. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Same words right here. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. In other words, when you read the call to worship that we had today, Daniel when Daniel was in captivity and he started to, these dreams that he was interpreting about these kingdoms rising, these kingdoms falling, he says, and one kingdom is coming and it's not a kingdom of a man. It's the kingdom of the Lord Almighty and he will crush all earthly kingdoms. And then when Jesus comes, this is my son, this is the king. And then when your Bible is, guess who is riding in glory and guess who will come and subdue the nations? Guess who will do it? It's the Lord Jesus. What does this mean, beloved? You're never kingless. You have a king who is ruling and reigning and fighting and protecting and keeping you right now. Be not afraid and be not wearied and be not anxious for what you see and hear about earthly kings have no power 
lest they've been given it by the Lord. And he says to you and I, fear not. I've come. Fear not. When you find yourself anxious and afraid, trust in God. Pray for leaders. When you find yourself panicking, remember you're not king less. The king of glory is yours. And he won it all. I'm not counting equality with the, with the Lord as something to be held on to, but coming to this earth to save you and to redeem you, to pay the penalty for your guilt and your shame and your sin, to buy you back that he might reign over you and keep you all your days. Now, if this king of glory is Jesus, then what the psalmist says is there are only two possible responses to this king. And it's in verses 10 through 12. Kiss him or be crushed by him. That's it. There is no third option. Kiss or be crushed. And this makes perfect sense coming out of Psalm 1, right? Psalm 1 says there are only two ways to live. You're going to be becoming a tree by meditating on the word or you're going to be becoming chaff that the wind drives away. You're going to be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous or you will be blown away. There is no third option. And therefore, Psalm 2 picks up on the same theme. There is no third option. We will either buckle and bow the knee to Jesus or he will buckle it for us. There is no third way. Now, what's what's ironic and it's really ironic is is who was this psalm written to? Right. Look at what it says in verse 10. Who needs to hear the message that there is a king stronger and better and more powerful than you? Notice it tells us who needs to hear the message. Now, therefore, you kings be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. In other words, it reads as if not only was God wanting to comfort Israel with this truth that you have a king, but he also wanted to use this same song to warn the kings of the earth. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God or he will humble you. Charles Spurgeon writes that we can see how God did business with kings in the Bible. Abimelech and Pharaoh, kingdoms of Israel overthrown, Nebuchadnezzar, Herod, Satan. Spurgeon pushes that a bit further, though, and he says you can actually look at what he's done to kingdoms in real history, right? And he says, of 30 Roman emperors, governors and provinces and others in high offices who were known by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting Christians and Christ's cause. Listen to what happened to him. One became deranged. Another was killed by his own son. One became blind and could not see. The eyes of one protruded out of his head. 
one was drowned, one was strangled, one died in miserable captivity, one simply dropped dead and we don't know why, one died such a loathsome and lonely death because physicians would not come into the room where he was because he stenched so much. Two committed suicide, a third tried to commit suicide but had to call someone to help him finish his job. Five were assassinated by their own people. Five others died excruciating deaths. Several had untold complicated diseases that could not be cured. Eight were killed in battle. The rest were taken as prisoners of war and killed. And Julian the apostate, about to die in battle, said, Thou hast conquered, O Galilean. So it has been throughout history, and so it will be to the end. Earthly kings who set themselves up against the Lord will be blown away and remember no more. Now, there's some good news in the passage. Notice how the how the Bible, how this section ends. The Lord is indiscriminate, right? Blessed are all, including kings and rulers and God's people who take refuge in him. This is an invitation to come kiss the sun. Kissing was a sign of submission. It's an invitation to bow the knee by faith. And so the, the way the psalm ends, it should be a question. Have you bowed the knee to this king? Have you kissed his hand? Have you served him? Have you turned from your own self to this king? Let not earthly power deceive you. May we all be found resting in him. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the promise that your king is on Zion. Thank you for the promise that your king has come and your king will come again. May this seep into the fabric of our hearts that we would, as we are citizens here, march to a different beat, to a different drum. Might we continually kiss your hand and serve you with fear and trembling. Might we find rest and comfort even when we're anxious. We love you, we bless you, and praise you in Jesus' name.